0: But at minus 30 in Sault St. Marie, hey, I'm barbecuing, right? I'm a, I'm a shorts and sandals guy, right? And I will go outside at minus 30 in my shorts because there is no humidity, right? My wife looks at me like I'm nuts, right? But I'll put my Crocs on and out I go.
1: You're listening to the Sioux Podcast with your host, Brian Keeney.
0: This is the place to hear from members of the Sault Ste. Marie
2: community and beyond.
1: We're on a mission to give local voices a platform to share their stories
2: and experiences. Whether it's supporting small business, discussing local politics, or tracking real estate trends. Find it all on the Sioux Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Today we have an exciting guest with us, Rory Ring, the CEO and President of the Sault Ste. Marie Chamber of Commerce. Very exciting. I've got a little bio here that Rory was nice enough to prepare for us. I know that I went online and I read about Rory and I looked at what he was about. I met Rory at a networking event actually at the Delta. Today I was actually just checking, like coordinating with Rory and saying, Hey, can you send us something? Our audience needs to know what you're all about. I think this is going to be a great show. Let's do an intro. So he whipped something together and here it is. All right. So for those of you who don't know Rory Ring from the Chamber of Commerce, here is his bio. In 2016, Mr. Ring joined the Sault Ste. Murray Chamber of Commerce, moving from Sarnia, where he lived for 15 years and ran the Sarnia Landon Chamber of Commerce for three years. Rory has always been focused on the need for a community to build a sustainable and growing economic base from within, while maintaining a strong open for global business philosophy. He's a firm believer in the leadership that is provided by the Chamber of Commerce Network who have dedicated their professional careers to doing what no other leadership role does in each of the Chamber communities. He is a former director of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce Board, Canadian Chamber Executive of Canada, Sault Ste. Marie Downtown Association, Sault Ste. Marie Economic Development Corporation, and past chair and current director of the Chamber Executives of Ontario. Prior to joining the Chamber of Commerce profession, he was a commercial banker and innovation lender with strong roots in cultivating and financing successful business operations. He has an MBA from Queen's University and a degree in political science from the University of Western Ontario. Interestingly, Mr. Ring also brings a very principled and ethically focused vision to his business values. Specifically, he strongly believes that diversity and inclusion are multifaceted issues and that we need to tackle these subjects holistically. To better engage and support all underrepresented groups within the business community. To do this, he believes we also need to address, honestly and head on, the concerns and needs of our diverse employers and diverse employees to increase equity for all, including, but not limited to, Indigenous peoples, the Black community, the Asian community, and other racialized communities in Canada, as well as members of the 2S LGBTQ community, persons with disabilities. And women collectively, as business leaders, we must do more to ensure welcoming workplaces for all, not only to address current labor market shortages, but to ensure economic prosperity and the future of Sault Ste. Marie. Wow, I really like that, Rory. I appreciate that. Yeah. (laughs) I you know, it's funny, like when I'm when I'm reading about bios from different guests, you know, potential guests, actual guests, been on the show, that kind of thing, and I read about all these interesting people in the Sioux. And I read so much about people's accomplishments. Like, this is what I've done. These are titles that I've had. These are my credentials and that kind of thing. And it's not often that I get to see, especially a a business and commercial leader, focus a lot of their sort of business self-identity around the idea of the betterment of the community for all. You know, Mm -hmm. where especially I think the conversation has evolved so much over the last 10 to 20 years in breaking down barriers for all communities, especially marginalized communities who are trying to break that glass ceiling and get further and further. It's not something I think is, well, it's talked about more so these days, a lot more. 20 years ago, it wasn't like that. 20 years ago, people weren't actively, especially in particularly influential positions like the positions that you've held. There wasn't enough of those conversations, I think, that were going on 20 years ago, but so much of that has changed for the better, I believe. No,
0: Absolutely. You know, and that's, really what makes the difference in the community is being able to have that holistic look and understanding that as a leader, you have a role, right? Right. You have that role and you, you need to adopt that challenge and, and live it in your everyday life. Right? right. And, you know, coming from a banking background of always being connected to the business community in one way or another. Right. And you see, you know, especially, you know, if, if you look like, at a banker. If you just take a look at a traditional yeah. banker, right, everybody yeah. thinks you kind of fit into this little bit of a box, a right? Specific and, demographic. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. You know, so it's always been nice to sort of bring a little bit of a different spin, even to within the, the banking space, especially when you're dealing with entrepreneurs, right? Because an entrepreneur, it, it's hard to understand in the first place, right? Yeah. A lot of people just don't understand that. And coming from a place like Sarnia and coming to Sault Ste. Marie. Yeah. The similarities are incredibly aligned, you know, small community, border community, industrial community, reliance, if you like, on many businesses, uh, on a major employer like Algoma Steel or the petrochemical industry in Sarnia. Right. And, you know, there's a certain what I call a, you know, a a certain social economic leveling because, you know, 20 to 30 years ago, you could have come out of high school and made $100,000 a year you could have done seven years of education, become a dentist and started at a hundred thousand dollars a year. Right. You know, but you've also invested, you know, half a million dollars in your education as a dentist, whereas the other person has had seven years to accumulate wealth. Right. And that reality, you know, is something I think that really influences the way that you view entrepreneurship and you view how society values entrepreneurs. And entrepreneurs come in all shapes and sizes. They come in all colors. They come in all beliefs. And, you know, when you're in the banking industry, you have to be able to, to look at that and manage, if you like, the risk. Right. So, you know, taking all those things into account gives you, I think, uh, a philosophy in, in life that makes you listen, which is an absolute key, and to listen to all groups and all diverse opinions. Because at the end of the day, when you fast forward that to today and that 20 to 30 years of evolution, studies prove out time and time again that a more diverse team comes out with a better decision. Interesting. A more diverse board has better decision making capabilities. It has a greater propensity to succeed than fail. So, you know, there's purpose to, to having that kind of perspective and living it. So titles are great, don't get me wrong, yeah. but unless it's a title where you can exert influence, right. then really truly what value are you bringing to the table? Right. When I look at that and I bring that living life to my role as a leader of a chamber of commerce, you know, quite simply, you know, and I've been thinking along these lines for a number of years, when you think about, okay, what, what does a chamber of commerce do? I imagine that is
2: something that our audience, my, many people in the audience are probably wondering. No, oh, absolutely.
0: And I'll just sort of say what I've come to live with today and maybe talk a little bit about some of the other elements in detail about what a chamber does. But at the end of the day, when you really think, and this kind of perspective is crystallized over the pandemic, and we can talk about some of the things we did, but really, you make a difference. That's simply what you are trying to do. You're trying to make a difference in your members, your member businesses, your member stakeholders. You're trying to make a difference in your community and then exert influence outside through other networks like the Ontario Chamber of Commerce and the Canadian Chamber of Commerce and make a difference on those levels as well. So, you know, it, it is, it's that pebble in the pond, right? And you have to be that pebble and echo that out. And as you say, you know, live a full life and a transparent life and right. a, an ethical life as well.
2: Very interesting. So let's say we've got, A random small business owner or aspiring small business owner in the Sioux who is thinking to themselves, you know, one day I would love to become an entrepreneur, quit my day job, be in charge of my future, build something interesting in this small town that I call my home. And as they're moving along this journey, how would, let's say, their involvement in the Chamber of Commerce help them along that journey?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it is a journey because when you start as just a single entrepreneur trying to build a company and you yeah. move through the various stages of like growth and maturity, if you like, yeah, there's different things that you need in terms of supports to bring you through through that journey. And you're, as your business potentially grows and you bring on employees, they'll also be at different stages within their own journey within that entity, right? Right. So... When we look at a member, it's not actually just the principal of the business. That's the member. It's actually all the employees as well. Right. Okay. So when we take a look at, you know, just the profile of the chamber, we were founded in 1889. Wow. Yeah. We still have members that have been members for over a hundred years. I mean, just imagine, you know, just imagine that. And we can, we, we can talk about that history too, maybe a little bit later in terms of why diversity counts and why we're doing some of the things that we're doing. But, you know, you have to build yourself upon that legacy, right? But you also have to be very adaptive because businesses are changing. And there's no finer example, of course, than going through the last three years and the demands that have been placed on business, whether they survived successfully, whether they were challenged or whether they failed. So when we look at what a chamber does to support, you know, small businesses, I look at it as sort of in four segments, if you want, or as in four buckets. And one is the business that really is focused on driving cash flow and establishing credibility. You know, so when you become a member of the Chamber of Commerce, you sign on to really a code of conduct saying that, you know, you will work within the confines of law and, and respect and, and those type of things. We have a process if there's an offside and that's brought to our attention. So that allows you to say, hey, I'm a chamber member, but it also comes back to say, hey, I make a contribution to my community. I'm not just here for myself, but as I build my business, I'm building my business to give back. And, you know, this is one of the things that I talk about is that sometimes when you're in communities like ours, they don't understand entrepreneurship and what it means to be an entrepreneur. And I always say to be an entrepreneur means that you're first in the office, you're the last in the office, and you're the last to get paid, right? And it may take three to five years for you to take home a paycheck, right? And you may have your house on the line. You may have liquidated assets. You might have borrowed money from friends or from family. You're taking that blood money, if you like, to get started. So that gives you to the second component of how do you support a a small business, and I call it a business builder. Establish credibility, build a network, have colleagues that you can bounce ideas off of, and that allows you to drive cash flow because cash is king, right? right? Unless you got revenue, you can't pay the bills. And it's a daily management of that thing. So what chambers of commerce do, they are able to bring you together and give you exposure to potential revenue opportunities. You know, whether it is prior to the shutdowns, you know, we did expos or trade shows, if you like. So bringing your members into contact with potential buyers or introducing them into supply chains, right? So getting them connected in meetings. If we have a meeting with Algoma Steel, you know, to have members of our board of directors from a very diverse background are able to think, okay, how can I connect? Maybe an opportunity for myself, but maybe an opportunity for my centers of influence, right? Or somebody within our network. How do we do that? So that helps sort of establish the need to drive that cash flow for survival. Like literally, it's about survival. And then, you know, what you see in the next stage then is you start to level your cash flow requirements out. You're driving that revenue. People understand the credibility that you have in market. Now you want to focus a little bit more on terms of gaining greater exposure to market or maybe internalizing operations and building better capacity internally to hire employees or whatnot. So we really talk about that building capacity and building competitiveness. And that you'll look at as being in that bucket of a business investor. So now you've driven your cash flow and now you're going to be reinvesting back into your business so that you can be more competitive, you can hire people. So we do things like offer an employee benefit plan. We offer uh, affinity programs that are like a gas card will save you three and a half cents a liter, right. which is available to the business and your employees, don't forget. So employee retention, right? Or attraction. So if you have things, that allow them to save a little bit of money. That also makes you a little more competitive in the labor market. And then, of course, we offer the ability to get exposure through marketing, whether it's social media or newsletter, involving yourself as a sponsor at a business after five, or Take Five, as we call it, Take Five Love Local. Right. And even participating in that as a Take Five Love Local, which we transitioned out of because of the Shop Local campaigns we did during the pandemic, just to make sure people realize the benefit of shopping local and keeping your money local and how that has a tremendous economic impact. Right. That has the potential to move into what we call a business community investor. So now you're starting to participate maybe on some committees in the community and volunteer your time, or you're a board member of the chamber of commerce or you're a member of one of our committees. So now you're really focused on building, Sault Ste. Marie's business community and that can be things like advocating at City Hall as well you know so we're focused on you know property taxes because people don't realize that a business pays either four to eight times more property tax depending on your classification than a residential property
2: I didn't know that wow oh yeah yeah
0: it's very very significant right so we spend some time making sure that our counselors and and the public service understand that the business community is very sensitive to that because Sault Ste. Marie has to compete against not only all communities in Ontario, but all communities globally, right. right, for economic wealth. So we look to provide access then for people to participate at a community level and make that difference at a community level. And then the final sort of bucket, the final segment that we have is your community investor. Right so they're really they have their business model they've got sustainable revenue they're competitive they've got the credibility they're doing things in the community but they really want to just take things to the next level a great example of that is Algoma Steel investing a million dollars in the addiction recovery facility there's people that provide capital you know rotary providing funds to support the splash pad or to build a downtown piazza and those monies are generated generally from the business community or successful entrepreneurs that are retired and want to put money back into the community. So you look at those things, and that really is what a chamber of commerce does. And if you're trying to put all of that speak together, right. it comes again down to that one thing, that these are your difference makers. right? Right. So the chamber is a difference maker. It can make a difference in your business, make a difference in your community, your province, or your country. So that really, in a nutshell, is you know, where we are today and then those comments around diversity is now looking to the future.
2: Right. That sounds really impactful. One of the things that I was thinking about when you were explaining that to me was something that I find both simultaneously very exciting about the Sioux, but also unfortunately disappointing for consumers is the following. When I think about the business opportunities and the general economic infrastructure in the Sioux, I see on the one hand, an enormous demand on the consumer side. There are people who are ready and willing to happily purchase the services offered by a local entrepreneur, local small business owner. On the other hand, unfortunately, there doesn't appear to be enough service providers in certain areas. Take, for example, just the other day, we were looking for a vet for our dog. We called around a whole bunch of different clinics. And every single clinic we called said, unfortunately, we're over capacity right now. We're not able to take any more patients. That's just something I never even had to consider when I was living in the GTA. I Mm -hmm. could sort of like pick from among a wide variety of veterinary options and I could take my pet to whichever one I felt was most comfortable, whichever was closest to where I lived, what have you. And I imagine, you know, like that's just one very specific service. I'm sure there's a long list of many, many different types of services here in the Sioux where you have people who are calling around. There is a need that needs to be filled. There's commerce that's waiting to happen. The demand side is there. The consumer side is there. But it's like, where are the service providers? And that to me, although it's unfortunate for consumers and customers, it also does present somewhat of an exciting opportunity for entrepreneurs. And, you know, since we're, we're on the topic of entrepreneurship, we're on the topic of growing small business in, in the Sioux, you know, in my mind, there's this gap that's waiting to be filled by whichever uh, entrepreneurial personalities might want to take up the calling. Right now, it doesn't have to be a young veterinarian or something starting on their career. It could be, it could be all kinds of things. You know, when I thought about, you know, why not try to fill one particular space, which is the podcasting space? You know, not to say there's not great media and entertainment coming out of the Sioux. I'm sure that there is, but it's one way that I can sort of like add to the space. In some sense, I view that as sort of an entrepreneurial journey, even though it's not motivated so much by financial gain or that kind of thing. And it's for me, it's more of a passion. But at the same time, it it makes me think about the, the markets that are waiting to be filled. And there's a lot of them out here. I think there is a certain level of excitement to it as unfortunate as it is for consumers right
0: now. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a great point that you make. And here's some of the dynamic that's happening as I listen to you talk about, you know, what is your purpose around doing this? And this whole movement around entrepreneurship to social purpose, right? right, And that, you know, we always look at two as well as that, you know, you have this concept that you're a not-for-profit, like we're a not-for-profit. But I'll tell you right now, we need to drive positive cash flow, right? (laughs) Because it's the only way to survive. But really, what is the result? The result is not an income or issuing dividend to shareholders. It's actually about social profit. Right. And what you're doing of those things that I just described. And part of that social profit is trying to demonstrate that there's a benefit to creating an entrepreneurial ecosystem, right? So working right. with other partners like the Innovation Center, like Millworks, like the Community Development Corporation or uh, Algoma Workforce Investment Corporation, different partners, the university, the college, you know, to start thinking about, you need to be educating people on what it means to be an entrepreneur, yeah. right? And whether that is totally profit-seeking, which is good, or social profit-seeking, which is equally as good. Different measures, different impacts. So you're exactly right. We need more entrepreneurs in Sault Ste. Marie. We need to create a stronger entrepreneurial ecosystem coming from a more populated jurisdiction. There's tons of supports out there. There's tons of places to go. There's tons of people to talk to about your entrepreneurial journey is limited in Sault Ste. Marie. And, you know, I think people need to understand we need to be talking about the entrepreneurial dream. So here's, you know, cycling back to a bit of my earlier conversation about how people view entrepreneurship in a community, whether it's Sault Ste. Marie or Sarnia, or is that if you're an entrepreneur and you start a business, at least within the first year, you're buying islands in the Canaries. (laughs) like, And that's (laughs) kind of the way people think, right? Like I can go work, I can go work at Algoma Steel. I can make 100 grand, or you you could have worked in the petrochemical industry and made 150. My son's a heavy diesel mechanic in Grand Prairie and probably makes 200 grand. Right. And so you have to think about perspective, where they are coming from. Right. And I remember when the first conversations around increasing minimum wage were coming and they were going to be a 30 to 40% increase. And, you know, writing a letter to the premier at that time and saying, you know, small businesses just can't afford that. Small businesses, as I just opened up with, they're the first to arrive in the morning, they're the last to leave at night, and they're the last on the payroll. And they're trying to make sure that, you know, do they not have a right to own a home? Right. You know, to go on a trip, to buy a 4x4 four four or an ATV, you know, what makes you think that they can just pay everybody else, right? Because honestly, at the end of the day, if you don't make money, how do you live? Yeah. And then you have to say to yourself, wow, geez, I mean, I could make $80,000 working for the government or I can make minimum wage working for myself with the hope of someday making the same wage. So part of what we try to do because of our representations uh, strongly connected to the private sector is to say, you know, the private sector is good. And we're currently living in an environment that actually is making people think that if you're in business for yourself, you're totally self-centered, you're getting all the wealth, you know, you're not sharing the pie, you're not doing any of those things, which is
2: wrong. That characterization is just wrong. Yeah, that characterization seems really
0: unfair. Yeah, you know, when you think about it, we go back to that that those models, the business builder, the business investor, yeah. the, you know, the, the, the community investor and the business community investor. When you take a look at it, if you're down in the business builder and the business investor, your dream is to get to those other two levels. Right. Right. To somehow make a contribution to community sponsoring sports teams, sponsoring arts and culture, sponsoring the build out of capital infrastructure you know, all those things. And what you see as more wealth is created personally, more of that wealth is actually shared to community, right? And you don't have to tax it out of them. You don't have to permit it out of them. You know, you don't have to have government grow to such a stage to try and force them to do that. Natural market forces and the social good in people will make those investments happen. So that's why it's so so incredibly important to embrace entrepreneurship and what it stands for, but also as a non-entrepreneur understand it, which is why we had the opportunity to make an investment in a shop local program that was federally funded, but it really was to connect the dots, right? It's to say, you know what, for every dollar you actually spend in a local business, it has a $7 economic impact. Wow. Yeah, think about that. How does that work? So you have you know, depending, but many businesses have local supply chains, yep. right? Buy goods and services from other businesses. Yep. They hire people. Yep. They have local insurance. They hire local security. They have local garbage disposal. Gotcha. You know, they may hire local, you know, patrol, security patrols. So all those things, then those employees of those other businesses and the employees of your business go forth and consume. Right. They buy shoes, they buy socks, they yep. buy the movies, they get, Bowling and then so that whole again, that pebble in the pond has that echoing effect within your economy. If you shop on Amazon, it doesn't happen. We don't have an Amazon distribution center here. Gotcha. If you go over to the States, it doesn't have that impact. It has that impact over in Sioux, Michigan. So keeping your dollars local as best you can is strong. Which we hope goes to lead more entrepreneurs to take the risk. Right to fill those service gaps that we're seeing here in the community. It takes time, but you know, that's the role that we need to have. That's the role that we try to communicate out to the general public as a chamber.
2: That's really fascinating. The idea that single dollar has this magnification impact. There's all these other people in the community, everyday average Canadians who benefit from that, single commercial transaction and I think a lot of times we don't think about that when we're going through our day we step outside of our house get into our car whatever and then we're driving down the street and we're like okay am I going to go spend a dollar at one of the big multi-billion dollar fast food chains or am I going to go to sort of like a locally owned mom and pop shop sort of family restaurant and then support my community that way Mm -hmm. I I know that I living here I've done both And it's just generally not something like I haven't sat down and thought about all the different parties that benefit from stuff like that. But it's very fascinating. I think, yeah, it's definitely something that's worth acknowledging.
0: And it's not to say that large corporates don't have an economic benefit to community because they hire locally, right? I mean, of course, they have their employees. They may not have a local supply chain, but it still has economic benefit. And the impact, that economic multiplier of one to seven dollars is maybe $1 to $2.5 or $1 to 3 So it still has an impact, but it's not as great as investing your consumer dollars in a locally owned business.
2: Totally. That's pretty awesome. I had a thought on that, and then it's just...
0: Let me just travel down a little bit more of a path on filling the service gap. Here's a great opportunity for Sault Ste. Marie. One, obviously, it's lifestyle, right? Everybody will talk about that. The other is cost of living, even despite the fact that You know, cost to live in a metropolitan area like Toronto, Kitchener, Waterloo, those areas, the Golden Horseshoe, London, Kitchener, those corridors, they're expensive. Even though the housing prices have dropped, they're going to come back. This is not a permanent thing. And the cost of living has dropped a little bit here in Sault Ste. Marie. Obviously, that's offset, though, by rising interest costs. But the thing is, you can still get on a plane and be in downtown Toronto in an hour and 15 minutes. You can go to the airport 20 minutes before your flight and get through security. Yeah. Imagine that. (laughs) Imagine that. that. Good luck with that. So so there's great benefits as people start to rethink priorities in life, right? And you've heard about the great resignation. It's actually not a resignation. It's, It's a redevelopment of how employees view their contribution to a business, to their job to their community, but also to their personal well-being. We're seeing a massive change in that. And there's a great opportunity for Sault Ste. Marie to attract entrepreneurs to this area because we do have a good lifestyle. We have good broadband. We have connectivity. It's not perfect at times once you start to get outside that. We're building greater diversity in our community, which means that there's more ethnic culture to experience and enjoy more ethnic foods to enjoy and that in turn also attracts a different kind of entrepreneur so as you start to build your community attractiveness you'll be able to fill those service gaps with more entrepreneurs and then those entrepreneurs want to belong to community right right they want to belong to community they want to give back to the community just as you know we we started talking about those four segments you know whether they're in any of those four segments we have a place for them here in Sault Ste. Marie and that can be extremely attractive. The big thing for us now is to make sure that we have labor force. Right. Right. That's the big thing for us as you build that entrepreneurial base, we need to be able to supply human resources.
2: Right. And I remembered the question I was going to ask you earlier when you made a comment about building sort of an entrepreneurial ecosystem, building sort of a culture of entrepreneurship in the community. And when you mentioned that, A question went through my mind in terms of like, what in your view would be the way, like the process that we could foster a community culture like that? And a sort of like an entrepreneurship energy in the community, if you want to call it that. And before you answer, I can tell you a little bit about my background to give you some context where I went to prior to law school, my undergraduate degree was at the University of Waterloo. And as you might already know, that university has a reputation for innovation. It has a reputation for pushing the boundaries of cutting edge science and technology and that kind of thing. But beyond science and technology, I find that at least when I went many years ago, and I imagine it's still like this today, the idea of entrepreneurship, creating a business, building up something new, whether it was in science and technology or some other industry, It was just sort of in the air. It was all around us. It was something that students enjoyed talking about with each other, connecting about, building friendships around. There was this excitement around, we're going to create something new, start a company, build something, rather than what you find at a lot of educational institutions where you're sort of just being. I guess, prepared for a lifetime of clocking in and clocking out at a nine-to-five job, which I guess works for some people. But as we were just talking about, this Sault Ste. Marie community is concerned right now in its economic growth stage that it's at. There's a need for entrepreneurship. So I guess where I'm going is how do we create that energy that we find in other communities, small communities, by the way. Water- I don't consider Waterloo to be a massive city. It's a relatively mm-hmm. small community. I don't know what the exact population numbers are right now, but like living for as long as I lived in Waterloo, it was a five-year co-op program, so I lived in the city for like five years. And having gotten a taste of what it's like living in the Sioux and also visiting the Sioux over the course of many, many years, I find that the relative sizes of the two towns are comparable. So, if it can be done in a place like Waterloo, building that energy, that vibe, at least as far as the university community is concerned, I imagine it could be done here. But I guess the question is how? And I guess the kinds of people that I'd want to ask are people like yourself.
0: Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And I'll sort of frame it in some experience that I had. So, for a short time, I moved from the commercial lending space, which is very traditional. Right. Very traditional, small business and large commercial business. I always used to say to my clients, I've got this brand new keyboard to my computer it's got two buttons on it and you can pick which one no or no friggin way and that's your that's your loan adjudication right so as an entrepreneur you will probably get that right so so there's that need to be able to source alternative types of capital that will help sort of foster that and that's why we partner and we'll be partnering again april 5th with the northern ontario angels to present a piece of that alternative source of capital. We have the BDC in place. You have community credit unions. So finance is extremely important when you're looking to establish an entrepreneurial ecosystem. And you have to get as many stakeholders and partners around the table to realize it's not about standing in your ivory tower. Yeah, it's, You need to drop the change and think about how to work collaboratively. And I think in the seven years that I've been here, we're starting to see some of that happen where the Innovation Center now is partnering with the college or the university. The industry is partnering with the college and the university. Amazing. Or, you know, I mean, the municipality, it needs to come along a little bit quicker okay. in terms of, you know, managing red tape and fostering internally an, a more entrepreneurial system as well. So you have your external entrepreneurial ecosystem, but you also need to have an intrapreneurial ecosystem, meaning that you need entrepreneurs within your traditional nine to five organization, right, to think differently. So that takes leadership. Right. And that really comes from the leadership. And then you need exactly what you're talking about at Kitchener Waterloo. You know, you need that kind of catalyst. So the university really became that catalyst. And and oddly enough, I just had this conversation with Ozma at Algoma University, the Chancellor and their chair, Mario Turco about when you take a look at, at what they've done over the last few years in partnering to offer different kinds of programs securing funding for research chairs because research is absolutely critical to driving the advanced entrepreneurial ecosystem right you need the research you need the right kind of agreements with the researcher to own the intellectual property so There is benefit to the university or the college. There's agreements that happen, but you give the researcher the ability to experience the enhanced economic wealth from owning the tech or the intellectual property, right? It's just not, even though you're using research facilities at a university or a college, the result is trying to drive commercialization of intellectual property. That's brilliant. And Canada is not good at that. It's not just sous Canada is not good at that. You're seeing now, even in some of the spaces right now with CRTC around podcasting and internet regulations that are really detrimental to building space in this digital format, right? Whether it's arts and culture or social media or news because of the rules around Canadian content and what you are seeing is the migration of those entrepreneurs to the U S that's terrible. It is terrible. It's absolutely terrible. And, you know, I have a son who's an it guy and he's in Manhattan, New York. You know, I couldn't help but He just said, that's as far as way from my father as I can get. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he's down there. I got one in grand Prairie, and I got one. I got one in New York, Manhattan. <laughs> we have my stepson down in Sarnia, but uh, you know, But anyways, but there's very different spaces, right? So we talk a little bit about money part, talk about the research part. But then, you know, I always say, you know, my philosophy is kind of like marketing. By the time you're sick of the message, your audience is just starting to hear it. Wow. So you can't give up, right? You can't give up. And so you just got to keep the message going, right? And sometimes when you get older, yeah, you know, and I'm no spring chicken, <laughs> you know, I'm at that stage, sometimes you wake up in the morning, you swing your legs over the side of the bed and you go like, man, okay, I got this. I got it. Yeah. I'll get through the day. I know what I got to do. I've heard the message probably 5,000 times, but I'm going to deliver it one more time. <laughs> so those, you need that communication, right? Yeah. And then you need what I talked about earlier on, the general public needing to know and understand what entrepreneurship means right and how it's achieved right and how it's supported so you need community to be able to respect yeah. what an entrepreneur is going through and when you live in communities like large industrial you know where single town employers that's hard that's a hard message right so you just got to keep it going you need the college and the university to engage and i mean you got two amazing things going on you've got Algoma steel investing in the new art technology and it's technology based the supply of, it's not going to be all from Sault Ste. Marie, but a large component of that is being supplied by businesses in Sault Ste. which means they have to up their game, right? So then they can go to the college and the university as long as they have capacity and say, hey, listen, right. I need this, or I need these employees. Can you build a course for me? Now, there's a lot of regulation around post-secondary education, but you got to be creative. A college can be a little bit more flexible, but also can private colleges, right? A university takes a little bit longer. right? But Algoma U is starting to do a great job in building that capacity. And that's when I said to Ozma, you need to model this after Waterloo, right? And then think about how we can develop an incubator like Communitech, scaled down, obviously, but also understanding that that, that ecosystem at Kitchener-Waterloo, took, well, now it's 50 years, over 50 years to build.
2: Took a long time.
0: It takes a long time, right? So, but you just, you can't give up. And our role as leaders is to make sure we have a secession plan in place, right? That we've got somebody else that can take the reins when we decide we're out of energy and I just can't take the message one more time. right? <laughs> so, you know, that's part of our role. and And that's why, you know, we really want to make sure that we're building capacity in the young leadership, the new leaders of Sault Ste. Marie to understand, you know, this is kind of what needs to be done. You need to carry the torch. You know, so Kissinger Waterloo takes forty or fifty years, right? And then we need to be able to make sure that as we as leaders are building that secession plan, right, for the future leaders in our community and making sure that they have the buy-in to what we're trying to accomplish in the long term. So You know, we have our Strive Young Professionals group, right, which is a small group of very like-minded individuals that think about the future of Sault Ste. Marie, and we need to make sure that we're cultivating those young people into understanding what is a community, what's a business community, what's the private sector, what's entrepreneurship, what are the Northern Ontario Angels, what does it mean to support women in business and, and women's leadership, what does it mean to advance on economic reconciliation, you know, so we need to make sure that those things are happening so that they can take the reins and continue to build that entrepreneurial ecosystem. Now, when we take a look and talk about entrepreneurs and where do you source entrepreneurs, obviously right now, there's a great deal of focus on immigration, right? Bringing new immigrants to Canada, And as we start to diversify our own culture, we'll be attractive to new immigrants to Sault Ste. Marie. But we also have to understand, potentially the fastest path to building a stronger entrepreneurial community is within our indigenous population. Right. They obviously understand us from a cultural perspective. They've lived in it long enough. They've had their own culture suppressed. But I think that also gives us a tremendous opportunity to embrace what that means for the future of Sault Ste. Marie. Right. Fastest growing youth population. Get them engaged, right? They're going to be learning traditions that led to a lot of discoveries through colonization. We lost a lot of that. When you look at time immemorial and you think about survival in the northern environment, it takes a lot of ingenuity. Right. Science North is here until I think the beginning. Well, they might have just wrapped up with indigenous ingenuity display. And what a great way to represent. And people don't think, you know, when you think about constructing a home, oh, it's all modern technology. Like, well, no, simply it was branches and tree bark, potentially, or right. frozen snow, or hides. Yeah. And thermodynamics, right? It's minus 40 outside, and you're living in a teepee. How do you efficiently use the heat? And it's right. amazing to see some of the systems that, right. that are built there. So embracing, you know, our indigenous Communities, history, culture, focusing on economic reconciliation will also bring us a great path to building a stronger entrepreneurial ecosystem. And from that perspective, we're totally unique in Northern Ontario, in Sault Ste. You know, we're totally unique. And I think that that can offer a great opportunity as entrepreneurs become more social-minded, right? And we talk about social purpose. We talk about social profit. You know, those things, we're seeing those new young generations of entrepreneurs thinking differently, approaching business differently, and that can only bode well for a place like Sault Ste. Marie, because you have connectivity to land. You still have connectivity to global markets very easily. Four-hour drive, you're just outside of Detroit, one of the largest economic engines in North America, you know, and we need to start thinking about how to take advantage of those things by building a stronger entrepreneurial community.
2: It's interesting what you talk about economic reconciliation and the sort of untapped opportunities and skills and resources that exist in the indigenous communities because, you know, it's just so relevant to a recent episode we recorded. As I speak, it's currently in the editing phase, but uh, depending on when a viewer is listening to this current episode, that other episode might already have been released. But we interviewed Grace Swain, who's a indigenous entrepreneur, very talented and intelligent, enthusiastic young person who, you know, despite being more than a decade younger than me, I, I feel like I learned a lot from her during that podcast episode that we had. So, you know, and now you bring that up, that point up as well. It's, it just, it feels very, very relevant to the discussions that we've been having on the show and that's And you didn't even know about that. Like we haven't had any discussions in advance about grace or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I found that very fascinating. Another thing that was going through my mind when you were explaining this stuff to me in terms of like building that overall culture of entrepreneurship in the community. I imagine that many, many listeners who are tuning into an episode like this, even if they have dreams and aspirations about starting their own business one day, and radically changing their lives and their financial situations. The thought that's probably going through a lot of people's minds is like, okay, well, all of this sounds great in theory, but I'm sitting in a position where I'm trying to figure out how I'm supposed to manage my household budget just to get my rent covered, my car payments covered, you know, paying off the credit card, all this stuff. How am I ever supposed to find the means to... Open up a storefront. Pay a commercial landlord for a commercial piece of land. Hire other people. You know, be responsible for someone else's wages, even, you know, given that being responsible for your own wages is hard enough, you know. There are practical barriers. Now, you know, I'm, of course, although mindful of these things, I've generally, you know, whether it's giving advice to a client or trying to decide my own, you know, economic journey, I've tried to focus on sort of solutions oriented approach where I'm like, okay, yes, these are very real obstacles that need to be overcome, but I'd rather focus on how I'm going to overcome it rather than the seemingly impossible nature of it. And going back to what you were talking about earlier in the episode where you mentioned, you know, how is it that some of these small business owners are going to deal with the rising cost of living, the rising cost of wages and that sort of thing. Because, you know, what, in my mind, I look at that and I'm like, well, small business owners, most of them are basically in very similar financial circumstances as everybody else. You know, you're sort of like, okay, I'm going to pay my commercial landlord. I'm going to pay the tax man, I'm going to pay my staff. I'm going to pay my supplier. How much is really left over? For some small business owners, what's left over is a negative number and they're going into debt that month. And maybe in order to afford that first few months worth of rent on their storefront, in order to afford to buy the inventory that they need, they might have taken out a loan. So they have these loan payments that need to be made, there's interest on the loans. And you know, I've heard a lot of perspectives on this where some people would be like, and I think this is sort of a, a narrow way of looking at it, but nonetheless, people do hold this view. They'll say, well, if you can't pay your staff a living wage, you shouldn't be in business. Okay, true enough. Let's close down all the businesses that can't afford to pay their staff a living wage. And I imagine we're just going to be left with the big multi-billion dollar corporations and you're pretty much going to see the end of the mom and pop shop if we were to do that now obviously that's a sweeping generalization and we have you know hundreds of thousands of businesses across Canada of all kinds of different sizes and people make it work i think the idea everyone agrees myself included that all businesses should pay a living wage but the fact that a lot of them can't seems to me to point to a larger economic problem in this country, then I don't pretend to have the solution. I mean, like there are all kinds of politicians out there that are pretending that they've got, you know, everything figured out and they're going to build a future that we can all love. I mean, that's what they all claim. I just don't know where the solution might rest, but uh, I do, you know, when I'm hearing you explain the detailed sort of granular nuanced steps that need to be taken to build a culture of entrepreneurship in a, in a city that could really, really benefit from it. To me, it sounds like you've really thought it through at a level that just, I had not even considered. So that's, you know, it's a lot for me to digest and it's imagine it's a lot for our audience to process. It's like, okay, let's, let's look at it from a different perspective. Let's look at it from the fact that using that Kitchener-Waterloo example of 50 years of growth and innovation and Effort that's been put into building that community the way that it is today, and how that same path could look like for the Sioux and look like, you know, for Algoma being the big university here, you know, how they could have a similar impact, a similar future in the community. You know, it's all for me, there's so much, both like a certain level of uncertainty, like where is it all going to go? And at the same time, that very uncertainty for me also inspires a certain level of like excitement, you know? And I guess that's the entrepreneur in me, right? Like when things are uncertain and when things aren't just like, and I'm like, oh no, I'm like, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to this community? How are we going to see a brighter future? Yes, there's a level of anxiousness associated with that. I think anyone would feel that way, but you know, just as I think about it, like I just, I literally have a smile on my face right now. Cause I'm like, I'm thinking about all the possibilities you know,
0: and I, I don't say this to many people, but I've lost money investing in small business. I bought a small business and lost its main client. And I lost money on it. That's the risk. Right. And, you know, you've got a lot of adventure seekers out there that jump from airplanes or, you know, do hella skiing, but an entrepreneur is probably the most dangerous thing you will ever do in life. Right. Because of the very things that you have just said. So there are support mechanisms out there that you can get within a community. So I talk about the Millworks Entrepreneurial Center or the Community Futures Community Development Corporation that's down on Queen Street. They have people there that can give you advice. And it comes from years of being either an entrepreneur or years of dealing with entrepreneurs and understanding the journey. And it is a journey. and. You know, it's different to start a tech company than it is to start a small retail shop or to start a bakery right? or a furniture manufacturing, right? So one, one, you should have a passion for it. End of story. If you don't have a passion for it, just don't do it, you know? Yeah. Just put the X in the box and say, see you later. Because you got to have a passion for it because you will live, breathe, eat, and sleep the existence of your small business. Oh, I know what that's like. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll have, you know... Days where you're as high as a kite because you've just landed a deal, or and there's days where you're going to wake up and go, Okay, how the hell am I going to pay my employees today? Right. I have like five bucks in my account. So what do you do? You either liquidate an asset. You, if you own a home, you leverage any equity you've got in your home. You might have to cash out an RSP. I've dealt with entrepreneurs that have cashed their RSP to put their. Retirement future on the line to ensure that they could pay their employees. But those wow. are the sacrifices yeah. and commitments that entrepreneurs make. You know, and so it's measuring those things. And sometimes, you know, as I, I say to my boys, the thing that my father taught me, a British engineer, so everything had to be mathematically aligned, right? Right. You put your priorities, you score them on level of significance. You measure, I can stay in my job as an engineer or I can go out and be my own engineering company. And you measure your risks versus return. And you also have to think about your risks as they're associated within your first three years and what do the returns look like in 10 to 15 years. You really got to start to think that way. The challenge with entrepreneurs is you're thinking about the next minute, right? When you're starting up, it's all about the next minute. You're thinking 10, 15 years, I can't even get my head wrapped around that. That's why it's so important to have community. That's why it's so important to have mentors in your community, other entrepreneurs that you can go to. And that's what the chamber facilitates too, right? I mean, it puts you together with other business people. It puts you together with other stakeholders in the community that can add perspective or they might actually have support or they might have an opportunity. So, you know, it's great. One of our board members, Ian Graham, just moved up from Toronto. Mm-hmm. and purchased ATS, Algoma Technology Services. And I love him for this because we were sitting in a meeting. We were sat in a meeting with Algoma. They were traveling down a path, and he goes, oh, cybersecurity. I want to talk to you because this is what we do. We were sitting in a meeting with Algoma Steel talking about what they're doing. He goes, hey, do you source your security and technology locally? Right. And he goes, well, I don't know. Are you a company? He goes, dad, <laughs> give me your number. I'm going to give you a call. So, (laughs) you got to have the hustle, right? I mean, you got to have the hustle. You got to have the hustle. You can't just open a door. And this is one of the biggest challenges. People just think they're going to hang a shingle or put it out on the door and business is going to come to them. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way because it's competitive. And this is one of the things in the roles that we do when we're doing a lot of advocacy work with government is we need to be competitive. We need to think about how we're establishing Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, Canada as a competitive entity to attract investment, not just external investment, from an investment from within. And, you know, because people make those calculations. If I'm going to take $100,000, I can put it here. If I'm going to take $100,000, I'm going to start a new business. I'm going to live a life that we just described for three years. But yeah. I, over here, I might have 100 grand earning 5%. But over here, I'm watching TV and eating popcorn. And over here, I'm living my dream. Right. So those are the kind of things that you need to do. But you really need to, one, understand your community, what's available in your community, and go to those resources, you know, other than your traditionals, which is your banker, lawyer, and your accountant, right? I mean, those are your three traditional pillars. Right. But there's other sources, right? So, you know, and the biggest thing as well, I think, in terms of being an entrepreneur is never be so scared that you don't ask. Don't ask for the business. Don't ask for the money. Don't ask for the opportunity. Don't ask for the meeting. You have to ask those things. So the amount of resilience that you see in entrepreneurs, and I'll say Canadian entrepreneurs, because Canada is pretty risk adverse. We are. We tend to have, you know, when you take a look at entrepreneurship in the States, we have a very, very different approach, right? And that's kind of why my keyboard joke at the beginning of being a traditional lender and then working in the non-traditional space. Don't be afraid to ask for those things that you think are going to suit you better. And if you need to take a loan, ask them for three months no principal payments. If they say no, then you just go to the next one, right? You know, or you go to the business development bank again, or you go to the community development corporation. There's ways there. If you need substantial investment, there's the Northern Ontario Angels. Then there's always you know just in natural ways. you go to your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your cousin, your nephew. Yeah, anybody you can, right? It's just if they got blood flowing through their veins, you can ask them for cash, right? Yeah, Yeah. you know. So there's ways to bootstrap these things, and but then you need to plan it out. You just, you just can't do it by the seat of your pants because the first question is from somebody who's going to lend you money is, okay, how are you going to repay me? What's the plan? Right? What are you going to use it for? What's the plan? And absolute transparency is key, but to have a plan is absolutely key. Yeah. At least a line of sight, right? So when I was in the alternative site, we used to have a 12 million dollar loan fund to put capital into fast growing companies. And I had Southwestern Ontario sort of Oran Sound down to Niagara and around. So very competitive environment. Okay. But really trying to highly structure loans to allow companies to drive working capital uh, through the revenue cycle, but remove from that the risk associated with funding innovation out of working capital. So, you know, you saw a lot of stuff, but that takes some very highly creative structuring. So, you need to think about those things. You're not just going to think about, oh, I'm going to go to a bank. It's going to be principal and interest. It's going to be right. X number of this. Think about what you need and ask for it. It's really that simple. You know, the worst thing is somebody's just going to say no but you got to keep on going. And just, if they say no, say, who should I ask? Ask for that referral. And that's, you know, that's the hustle of an entrepreneur. Don't expect the door to be open. Don't expect business to come your way. Cause you put a shingle out. Yeah. You got to go out there. You got to be hungry for it. And you know, I'm always of the philosophy. Listen, if it fails, it fails. Don't kill yourself over it. Right. I mean, it's just going to happen. And I wish we had more of that kind of philosophy in Canada like it is in the States, like in the States, if you've had a business and it's failed, a lot of funders just look at that. What did you learn? Right. And how are we going to do it right next time? Right here? If you fail and have to declare bankruptcy, it's like you're a pariah. Right. And that's to touch it. It's that's a wrong way to think because who knows what could have happened? Even in my own case, right? I mean, I had one supplier and, you know, the market, the financial market fell out, like just gone. Anybody I was doing with basically shut their doors. So what are you going to do? You're just going to shut your door. You pick up your socks and, and you move on. But you can't let that, I think, put you down into a place where you're not going to try again. And you just, you know, you just got to keep on going because maybe you did learn something. Me, I never went back into that business because it just didn't exist anymore, right? And then I found my calling in other places and, you know, the chamber world being one of them. But there's always a way to work it out, I think. And you just, you know, don't hide yourself in a hole. Yeah. Get back out there. You know, just go for it. If you've had a passion for it, just keep going. You can eventually find some money somewhere. It's out there. There's a, I mean, we're Canadians are sitting on a mountain of cash, like a mountain of cash, especially as the demographics start to do what they do, where you're going to have people inheriting wealth from the previous generation. Right. Right. And so there's always opportunity. There's a place to source it. There's resources local to help you hold your hand, you know, and to help you through that journey the only thing i think that as a community we ask is at some point in time when you're successful just share it back to the community right sponsor a hockey team sponsor a business awards you know sponsor an opioid addiction counseling center or whatever just give back and 99% of entrepreneurs do exactly that right That's which really is inspiring. which is a beautiful thing yeah it's a beautiful thing yeah
2: i had a question how did you get through the what I imagine was a very emotionally difficult and emotionally jarring experience of that business failure that you mentioned earlier. Because I think, you know, personally, I think that failure is a part of entrepreneurship. I think you will see times in your company where, like I mentioned earlier, there are months where you are negative cash flow. Uh, you might have negative cash flow for two or three months in a row. And you might be thinking to yourself, is this business even worth having? Is it going to be, is it going to turn around? And am I, am I going to see positive cash flow in the future months? Or is this problem going to even get worse? And then should I close this business? That's when you're in the midst of a business. And then maybe there might be something that brings about the complete end of that business like what you were talking about earlier with that experience that you had so yes dealing with the financial ramifications of a situation like that is one kind of skill but i think another distinct kind of skill that's important for entrepreneurs to have is trying to navigate the emotions that can happen to any normal healthy-minded human being when they're in a situation like that so my question to you is how did you deal with that
0: Uh, Well, you, you know, you really rely on the people that are close to you, right? Right. And and I'll be honest with you, a lot of it was because I was involved in the Chamber of Commerce in Sarnia. at that time, was on the board of directors, did two terms with them, was very close to the business community and they get it, right? So, you know, again, just be open. They can walk you through it. They can talk, you know, and then you just go back and reassess reassess your priorities in life. At the time, I had two boys. My wife had passed away. And, uh, you know, I said, where are you going to put your energy and time and where are you going to focus? So okay. I went back into the banking world. But I took that experience. It was interesting. It, it's a great thing to sort of go back and, and gain some perspective here. Because I rarely, rarely talk about it. Rarely. Well, I appreciate rarely you sharing it. it. And I took that experience and then I applied it to what I did as a commercial banker because I had some workouts I had to do yeah. uh, with some folks. And and honestly, those people walking into my office and saying, we're done, we're finished. Can't do this. And they owed us money. So the thing is, take a deep breath, guys understand. Let's take a good hard look at your situation. There's ways that we can work it out. And let's take our time on this. You know, obviously I have to go through some steps and this is what these steps look like. What we're going to try and do is we're going to try to get you a solution that works for you. And it's achievable. Right. right. As long as you work together with those folks. But if they had had, you know, a hardline traditional banker that from the age of 18 has never done anything except work for a bank, it would have been, I think, a horrible experience for them. And you know, so. You seek out, you know, you've already probably talked to your accountant, your lawyer and banker before, you know, as you come to that decision and your banker may be the very last one. But, you know, ask for that understanding uh, when you're in those kind of situations and talk to people who you know who have either gone through it or had those struggles. Because I guarantee you, every entrepreneur has lived that dream, has lived that dream. And there's experience that you need to be tapping into the other thing is I think never ever be ashamed because you're probably one out of 10 people who's given it a try. Right. And that's pretty admirable. Yeah, I look at what's happened to our our small business community in the last three years. And especially if you're in the food service or accommodation sector and the admiration I have for these people is unbelievable because they survive. They change their business models as best they can. None of them made money, like in those particular tourism, music, arts and culture, right. anything that was high-touch, right? They, they didn't make any money. They could maybe pay the rent, but what did they do? Talk to your landlords. I've talked to many entrepreneurs, my members, who said, we just worked with our landlords, patient capital, right? right? Patient capital is what it's called. We'll wait till you're on the right side, right? And then we can work out how you're going to repay. But we're going to walk this path with you. Because most of the landlords here are entrepreneurs. Right. And they've been down this, you know, through all the ups and downs. Right. In Sault Ste. Marie. So it's just to be open and don't try and hide anything. Don't feel ashamed. You should be proud. You gave it a try. And, uh, you know, sometimes that's just the way things work out. I think if you have that perspective in all things in life. Right. You know, you'll end up, I think, a more whole individual. But you'll also... Continue on with a community around you, right? And you won't be isolated. So, you know, it is a risk. It is a risk. You may fail, but don't be ashamed of that. Learn from it and, you know, take advantage of those who are around you to help support you through it.
2: Good advice. I was thinking about something you said earlier with the, um, you know, power of asking, right? Because if you don't ask, the answer is no you've just said no to yourself you've closed the door on yourself before you even get an opportunity to pursue a particular you know advantage for your business and as you were telling me that i thought about a negotiation that we were involved in at the law firm years ago this was before the pandemic i think probably sometime in if i had to say early 2018 yeah so about five years ago, we were in the midst of changing office spaces. We needed a significantly larger space to deal with the, the growth <laughs> that we were seeing. We were hiring more employees. We were getting more and more clients. Our office that we were operating out of just wasn't, wasn't going to cut it for us. So we were talking to this person who was going to be our new landlord we were still negotiating the deal. And uh, it was actually my business partner that made the bold move of asking for something that I wouldn't have asked for because I, I thought it was too big of an ask. She said, you know, to the landlord, what do you think about giving us six months early occupancy? So for anyone who isn't familiar, I see you smiling because you probably know what that term means, but for anyone who isn't familiar with what the term early occupancy means in a commercial leasing agreement, basically means that your move-in date, your official move-in date, and the day that the rent checks are due is listed as a certain specific date on the contract. But in reality, you move in earlier than that and you don't pay rent for the early occupancy period. Now, oftentimes, this is something that is negotiated so that small business owners are not put in a position where they are paying rent at two different offices at the same time. You know, if it takes a full month or so for you to move your things from one office to the next, you want access to both locations, but you don't want to be paying at both locations. So it helps commercial tenants make transitions from one place to another. And normally an early occupancy period is quite short. You know, it it accommodates for moving and stuff like that. So six months of early occupancy would seem quite silly at least in my mind. But what I didn't know at the time was I was sort of closing the door on myself by not wanting to even ask for something like that. Now, my business partner at the time was much more bold in that regard, and she would just ask for whatever. And her attitude was more so consistent with yours, which is like, well, if you don't ask, you're not going to get it. And if if you ask and they say no, well, they've just said no, you haven't lost anything.
0: What's interesting about that is probably you may or may not have realized at some point in time, She said to herself, if I was the landlord, what do I want? I want a tenant. Yeah. I want a tenant so I can have 90% occupancy or 80% occupancy or 40% occupancy. Because if you're a tenant and I've got 40% occupancy, now I can bring people in and show this place off. Like, look at this. I've got this business in here. So it's starting to think about being on the other side of that table, knowing what you want. Yeah. But really, what does the buyer want? It's interesting.
2: So the landlord ended up giving us the six months early occupancy complimentary. And I was just like,
0: what? (laughs) This
2: is just so shocking to me. Like it seemed too good to be true, but it was true and it wasn't too good to be true. It was just, it was unexpected. And I thought about it for a while. Just exactly what you said. Like, well... The landlord must be doing this because it's good for their own self-interest in some way. It's business at the end of the day. People are looking out for their own skin. And the conclusion that I came to at the time was exactly what you just said. That landlord was looking at the bigger picture. At the time, you know, there wasn't a lot of tenants showing interest in that particular building. But getting a pretty successful law firm like ours with a relatively large workforce and a well-known brand you know, putting their sign up in front of the building yeah, that could go a long way for getting some other tenants interested in the building. And, uh, that's exactly the effect that it had because after we moved in, we did see a number of the other units getting quickly filled up. So I think the landlord was looking at the big picture when he gave us that deal, which I thought was overly generous, but in fact was very, very strategic for him to do. So, you know, I think for our advice to our listeners out there, if you're trying to start up your small business and you're, you're worried that what you're asking for from a supplier or a landlord or a collaborator is, is just, seems like it's asking for too much, you know, look at what that other person could benefit from in giving you that. See things from their perspective and it may be that you can come up with a win-win situation that results in, in you receiving something that you thought was maybe too much to ask for but turns out it was totally, totally
0: reasonable. Yeah, uh, you know, it's a great point, and you're seeing some trends now in customer service or customer experience. Yeah, right, and how important it is. Make sure you're putting yourself in the customer's shoes, and that is so incredibly difficult for somebody who's starting a business, right? Because right. at the end of the day, you're thinking, "How do I pay the mortgage?" Right? How do I feed my kids? How do I do? this? So you're just thinking about all these things about yourself. Sometimes the last thing to come into your perspective is what your purchaser wants, right. what your consumer wants. And it can take a lot of discipline to understand what they want and don't, you know, those expectations, you're never going to close a sale the first time. You know, there's all kinds of stats. You need to make 5 calls. Yeah. You need to make 10 calls. You need to make 20. It depends on what the sector's purchasing behaviors are and you need to know that. Yeah. But you also have to understand and the best tool for an entrepreneur in looking for a customer is to ask questions. Not tell them about your business. Tell them about your product. Tell them about your features. Tell them about all the little things that you do. Ask them questions. Yeah. It really is amazing. You know, I'm, I've been in the sales game in various forms. And the last thing you focus on is yourself. Yeah. And you focus totally on the person who that you're dealing with, whether they're a gatekeeper you know, they're protecting the actual buyer. Right. But you still need to ask those questions, you know. And that's the success that I had in banking. I came onto a portfolio, you know, I think it was a uh, book was about 17 million. Within three years, I had it up to 65 million. Wow. And that was really simply because I went to those businesses and learned about them. I mean, you just asked the questions, you know, what's this? What's that? Why do you do this? You know, what's that person doing? How did you get into this business? You know, are your kids going to take over? All those things. It has absolutely nothing to do with you, except you're getting information, right? You're getting the ability to communicate now with a prioritization to the valued relationship with the buyer, right? Stop thinking about yourself. Stop thinking about your product. Start thinking about your customer. And it puts you in an incredibly powerful position than your competitors, because if you understand those needs, you are able then to have that conversation eventually that brings business into your door. So there's, you know, and those, those are kind of things that as a new entrepreneur, you have to learn, and that's why it's so important to communicate to people who have been there, done that, you know, learn how they drove business, how they did these things, and, you know, yeah, you can't win them all, that's just the nature of the game, right? So, again, if you don't win it, pack your bags. Make sure you understand. You critique yourself, right, and figure it out, right. And you know, maybe it's a controllable thing, or maybe it's a non-controllable thing. Because you will there'll be things in in your business life that you just can't control, right? Like I couldn't control the fact that I'd never be able to get financing again because the whole financial market just nobody was doing anything, right? Because right. there was literally no money and no risk taking. So can you control that?
2: No. You can focus on the things you have control over. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Understand what you can't control and focus on those things that you can control. And when you start to learn those disciplines, I think that you will take your stress notch down, you know, significantly. Right. 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 <laughs>
2: Actually, one of the things I want to tell you about Rory was there was a previous episode of the podcast where I was talking with a guest about the incredible opportunity for software entrepreneurship, specifically in the Sioux. And one of the stories I'd mentioned, I'll, I don't want to belabor it and get all into it again because I've already said it in a previous episode, but I'll, I'll give you the quick version. My brother who lives at Young and Dundas in Toronto, uh, as anyone you know, who's familiar with the GTA knows that's basically like Canada's Times Square. He lives like a three minute walk from over there. He lives in this really nice condo and he purchased the fastest internet that was available for that condo. And he told me that apparently the internet that I get here in the Sioux is actually much faster than his. So I thought about that for a moment and I was like, if we have an internet infrastructure here in the Sioux, that's actually faster than and rivals some of the big cities out there in Ontario, why then do we not yet have a more vibrant software entrepreneurship community? You know, like when you think about it, if you're someone who is determined to build a multi-million dollar company, software is the way to do it. You know, I mean, yeah, there are a lot of great industries and there's a lot of great ways to become wealthy and successful. Yes. But if you're talking about like something that has a traditionally low barrier to entry, low startup costs, what do you really need? You need a laptop, you need a fast internet connection, and you need some skills. And let's say you don't have skills in, you know, building apps and building software solutions. Okay, there are free YouTube videos that will teach you those things. So again, low cost to get started. So, you know, one of the things I thought would be really exciting, and maybe this is happening to some extent in the suit, you would know better than me, but one of the things I thought would be really exciting for the Sioux is some sort of software incubator or software a group of software companies that could come together and work in a communal sort of office space where, you know, we've we've seen the rise of these sort of shared office spaces where you had a whole bunch of different companies all on the same floor and that kind of thing and they've each got their own sort of little rooms and stuff. So if we had something that attracted software entrepreneurship in the Sioux, where the whole building, the whole floor was just set up with the best internet possible and you have all these different little private meeting spaces for people to collaborate and like draw their ideas on on whiteboards and stuff like that and maybe you know I'm not unaware of the fact that we have you know the Millworks Center for Entrepreneurship that seems like it's sort of creating a space for that but what I don't know what I am unsure of uh, is whether or not we have a software and technology focused place for entrepreneurs tech entrepreneurs to go and sort of like launch the Sioux into the next century of innovation and, and really put the city on the map. You know, I think that would be really cool. And maybe it's happening. Maybe it's not like, maybe you could tell us more about what you know in that side. Of
0: well, you know, I, I think it's uh, a tremendous opportunity. Absolutely. But you know, when we talk about developing an ecosystem like that, we talk about kitchener waterloo we talk about 50 years, but again, you know, when it started, everything kind of moved at a certain pace. And now that pace has escalated, you know, I mean, everything probably moves 10 times faster than it did, you know, in 1960. Right. So we're in a place where we have opportunity. We do have some infrastructure that's required it, like the internet capacity and broadband. The challenge is, you know, we haven't fostered at the university or the college in post-secondary that kind of research component that I mentioned earlier, right? That is starting to happen. And I think there is a bit of an awakening around the opportunity to have, you know, a software focused innovation center, if you like. And I know that the university has started to lay the groundwork for that. So when we were speaking with Osma just last week, uh, she had mentioned things around that. Right. And there's, you know, obviously there's different, markets that you can take advantage of that you may have some speciality in as a community. Right. So you need to be able to leverage something that exists to, as opposed to starting something that's totally greenfield. Right. Right. And because that you will actually need to attract and you can only do that through having the human resources available to you. So if you have the inability to attract the human resources, you won't attract the entrepreneur. That's why it's critical that post-secondary starts to get into this space, right? Right. Starts to think about the research dollars, building their computer science, their computer engineering, their business and economics courses to build out that capacity to attract the entrepreneurs or to grow them locally. Right. And then give them a place to be. So there is conversations in the community now about doing just that. When you take a look at our conversations around the millworks, it is more traditional, you know, hot desks, more traditional businesses, consulting, some product development, if you like, in that space with the supporting mechanisms. Then there is the, you know, the Sault Ste. Marie Innovation Center, which is doing great things around, you know, agricultural innovation. And there, uh, was it geomatics? that they have okay. using data collection, right? So trying to leverage those different things. So the innovation center is doing some things in space. And I know Peter there has really been talking about and considering how do you then move that from its current location into something that's more desirable by that sector, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mentioned my son's in, in Manhattan, he's a software engineer and he's part of one of those companies. That is, you know, the high growth, the hockey stick growth or the right. gazelle, whatever you want to call them. But there was a quick ramp up for them and then they stabilized, right? So they didn't get caught like some of the other organizations who, you know, brought on 10,000 technology folks and then had to let them all go, right. you know, when they couldn't scale for, for the future. Right. But still, you have to have the ability to make sure that you've got, you know, access to the human resources you know, and you do that through your education system or by attracting immigrants or, you know, economic reconciliation, like we talked about, right. Or migrants from Southern Ontario, basically. Right. right? And again, that's where, where you have to really think about, okay, well, what do we offer? You know, there are some people that will not come to Ste. St. But there's some people that are tired of the hustle and bustle, right. You know, they're tired of some of the risk that's associated with a large population. I was just saying to somebody the other day, the only thing you have to worry about in Sault Ste. Marie is somebody pushing you in front of a moose. (laughs) (laughs) There there isn't a subway, right? There isn't, you know, so so there's different lifestyle risks. But, you know, you can imagine being able to, if you want, commune with nature as part of your job. I mean, sitting out in your backyard. I mean, you can buy properties here where the bush is right there. Right. You know, if that's your thing or, you know, you want to go for a ride or a bike ride, you know, or go for a boat ride or go for a skidoo or go skiing or go snowshoeing, go cross-country skiing, all that's available to you within literally five minutes. Right. If not less. And, you know, that can be really attractive because if you're a software engineer or, you know, or developing software, the majority of your time is screen time. Right. Right. And you need to, you know for your own mental health and well-being you need to get away from that yeah and we talk about so some of the trends that are happening in workplaces and the younger generations rethinking about the relationship they have with work right and mental health and well-being is becoming a very you know dominant subject in the employment circles yep. right and in and in companies right that you need to take a break you need to get away right and you know, you talk about being, you know, in Times Square in Toronto, yeah, right? And yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. And and coming and visiting back down to Toronto is just like the noise is is <laughs> it's, overwhelming. it's overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. You know, the lights and and you know, especially I remember going to to my first conference after being through the pandemic, and it was sensory overload. Yeah, like it really was, right? And it was amazing to be. Just surrounded by lights, noise, nonstop people, and you're kind of like, I just I can hardly wait to be in my backyard, yeah, and just, yeah, 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 you know, and then go back to work, you know, because things, you know, we're a very small team at the chambers, just myself and Don. We had an intern for a year, so we put a lot of hours in. It's a lot of screen time, a lot of connectivity, right? Managing programs and stuff, and it's great just to get up and walk into the backyard. Just get some fresh air. Oh my God. Yeah. Right. Just get the fresh air. And, you know, I'm becoming a boater this summer. So, you know, to be able to just take the sign, jump on a boat and boom, just be on the water or even just to be in a marina, you know, is, and it takes you five minutes to get basically anywhere you want to be to experience these things, you know, or if you want to go skiing, search mounts, what about a 40 minute drive? Uh, you know, all those things are there without the busyness and the craziness. And that can be really attractive if you're an entrepreneur in the software space to be able to focus, right? Right, to be able to focus. And so to present those opportunities, I think is a great future for Sault Ste. Marie to connect that lifestyle, the health and well-being to creating companies that can be global competitors, right? Yeah. And attracting then the workforce, the entrepreneurs, we're starting to develop more sophisticated money as we talked about earlier with the Northern Ontario angels. Yeah. You know, we have the Northern Ontario heritage fund corporation that funds a lot of businesses. We have Fednor, which wants to involve themselves in some larger projects, you know? So there's, there's a lot of opportunity. The biggest thing is trying to get the message, right? Trying to get the message to those who would want to look at a different kind of lifestyle to develop. Developed there. And interesting enough, I was talking with somebody the other day about the potential of bringing an entrepreneur up north. Right. Because they've decided that it's just, it's too expensive in Toronto because if you have high overheads for your lifestyle, you're going to have high overheads to pay in wages. Yeah. Right. That's just, it's economics 101. Yeah. Right. So yeah, you may not earn as much here, but you'll definitely take more money home. Yeah. Right. And you'll have a, a healthier uh, lifestyle at the end of the day. So I think it's a very attractive opportunity for Sault Ste. Marie. As again, we start to build those spaces, we start to think about what does an incubation or innovation center look like? How do you do what Communitech has done in Waterloo? Right. On a smaller community scale, don't get me wrong. But how do you create that environment that's going to bring those entrepreneurs here? I have to tell you a funny story though. So my son in Manhattan, right, he's, okay. you know, pandemic comes, they shut down the office, everybody goes home. Okay. So he was up visiting about a year and a half ago, and they're, they're in New York, so they're starting to get back to work and open up the office, and I'm saying, like, Devin, you are you going to go back to work? And he goes, oh, Dad, you know, like, why would I want to go back to the office? <laughs> They've got rid of the candy wall. Yeah. I said, excuse me? Yeah, yeah, they just like candy. You know, you just go and help yourself and take whatever candy you want. Yeah. And then there's no more catered lunches. Oh no! So I'm like what? You just yeah, oh yeah, you just pick up the phone and you yeah. just order whatever you want. Yeah. But you know that's changed. Like that place isn't even there anymore. Right. But the biggest thing is there's no longer going to be the barista. <laughs> like, they just threw everything out. They the just they just went out the window, right? Because everything changed. And oh my god! And just like okay, so you're not going to go back to the office because you're not you're not being treated like <laughs> like a princess. <laughs> <laughs> just like, well like the new standard. I guess. You know, here, here I am, you know, and I've been working for 40 years. I'm yeah. looking at my son going, I don't recall ever having any of those things, let alone the foosball on the pool table, right? <laughs> <laughs> like,
2: well, times have changed. Yeah, so, so yeah,
0: but you're exactly right. I mean, you know, as we joke about that, but that's what you have to look at, right? Yeah. Like, what does that workforce want? Yeah. And if you want to be in a big city like that, company's in Madden because they're close to big money. Yeah, right. Of course to big big money canada's not like that we have a good venture capital system it's not as good as it should be the angel investment community here is pretty strong and we've talked about that you know but there are other sources that but the, our biggest challenge is when you get that gazelle how do you get them financed in canada you know even when you take a look at a company like shopify yep it's all u.s dollars yes they're in ottawa their biggest offices in the u.s and I want to say it's maybe it's either Massachusetts or Missouri or something. I can't remember what it is. But, you know, that's where you're going because the tax regimes are more beneficial. The risk appetite for risk is far higher than it is in Canada. Right. And, you know, you can go to very different uh, jurisdictions. You know, like Boston will have a certain appeal to types of Software industries where Texas may be something else or, you know, Silicon Valley will be something else. Right. So the diversity is a little bit greater. Right. So, you know, for us, when you look at it, the big ones, Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa. Right. Vancouver. Right. And that's in a pretty big country. So still opportunity. Don't get me wrong. But we need to find that niche. Yeah. Where you connect lifestyle to the gazelle. Right. And yeah. how do you build that gazelle and provide the infrastructure? So I think there's a tremendous opportunity for this.
2: Oh, absolutely. You know, especially on social media these days, you see a lot of these um, sort of finance gurus, some of them very, very credible and legitimate and wise and, and knowledgeable. Some of them not so much. And they're selling this idea of this glamorous laptop lifestyle where you, you know, you're, you're scrolling through TikTok or Instagram or whatever and you see this person who's like, would you like to live in Bali or like, with your laptop and make money living in this gorgeous place? Or would you like to live in like this Caribbean island making money? Like usually you see stuff like that and you're like, ah, that seems a little too good to be true, right? Like it's, you, you look at it and you're like, you're skeptical. What I like about, what I find exciting about what we're talking about is it's not, totally necessary if you're dreaming about this like laptop lifestyle of being in a beautiful nature environment and making money from your computer you don't have to go all the way to Bali you don't have to go find an island in the Caribbean you can do that right here in Ontario by coming to a place like the Sioux which has just the most beautiful summers and um, you know winter has its own charm here obviously poses its own challenges but there's a charm to it and You'll never be bored with the weather here. It'll be, it'll be something that will, like you, like you were talking about, getting you away from the screen when you need to be, and then when you need to be making money in front of the screen, you you have that internet infrastructure and you have a community here that you can rely on. So it is that sort of like escape from the the grind that that you find in big cities. I tell you myself, for me, you know, moving to the Sioux was one of the best decisions I ever made both personally and professionally. Mm -hmm. I, I just, I honestly, I do not regret it for one second. So if an entrepreneur like myself who has done the things that I've done in my career can feel that way about this community, I think there's a ton more people out there who can also feel the same way. Talking about what you were saying in terms of like building and fostering that energy, that entrepreneurial software focused energy, or it could be, I mean, a lot of different industries, but for the moment we are talking about software and you were talking, you made a couple of comments about how that's possible and slowly being done in sort of like the post-secondary level. And when you said that to me, I thought to myself, you know, it can start earlier than that. You know, it can start even at the high school level. And like Jason's about to graduate high school in a few months. Yep. And I guess I wanted, what I wanted to ask you earlier when Rory made that comment was, like, to what extent, if any, have you seen in your high school career an environment of a sort of entrepreneurship on the one side, but more specifically, like, technology and, and high-skilled entrepreneurship in your high school experience here out in Northern Ontario? I'd just be through co-op. Through co-op. Mainly through co-op, yeah, because you have more hands-on experience with many different businesses, whether it be where I'm working right now, the Legion, right. working as an electrician, doing all the wiring and stuff, commercial, right. or I was working last year at Bocoma Auto Electric, you're building alternators for starters. Nice. You get to meet a bunch of people from everywhere then too because you deal with Saldan or with steel plant and stuff like that, so you get to meet other people and see yeah. what they do for a living. So there is a program. There's some sort of academic infrastructure that's putting students in the community, in industry, mm-hmm. and then giving them an opportunity to sort of explore what sort of businesses and skills they want to get into and that kind of thing. Yep. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah.
0: And this, you know, number one, that's awesome to see that you're doing that and you're learning those skills. But you understand the biggest thing is you understand that doing that is going to build a future for yourself, whatever that might look like. There was a great article in the McKenzie uh, document called There's No Such Thing as a Dead End Job. Right. Because you're always gonna learn some kind of skill. Right. Well that's awesome that this young man is picking up on those things.
2: I agree. <clears throat> there is no such thing as a Yeah, and just to just
0: to build on that, I mean it's it's you know, when you take a look at the future and the trajectory of business, doesn't matter what sector you're in, you're gonna need software. You're oh. gonna need technology development. You know, we can talk about, you know, the labor shortages or, or how we've changed labor you're going to need technology to fill those gaps, right? I mean, that's just the reality. Whether you're a grocery store or you're Algoma Steel, you know, or you're a little retailer, yep. right? You're going to need technology to to be successful, you know? I mean, great example is, you know, when we started to roll out the Shop Local campaign, yep. you know, we're promoting it to the consumers, but we're also telling our members, you need digital adoption. Yeah got to be online some shape or form you have to be there so yeah. make the investment there's programs to help support it especially during that time but you need to be there because that's what the consumer wants yeah And we we're talking about think like the buyer think like the consumer yeah right they're locked down at home they don't want to go out they yeah. may they may drive by and get curbside yeah you know but they can't come in your store yeah so how do you showcase yourself? How do you make, create awareness? Yeah, and you have to be, you know, on the lead—not not necessarily the leading edge—but you know, you got to be, you got to be there. You got to be present, right? right? And then when you adopt that, you learn how to tweak it and how to advance it. And if you have local capacity to fulfill that retailer's demand, that's absolutely brilliant.
2: Yep. Have you heard of that app, uh, Task Rabbit? No. Okay. No. So. It's really picked up in in sort of like more big city environments. They have it. In fact, I used it quite a bit when I was recently in uh, the GTA. So uh, I have a condo down there. Tracy and I were in the process of renovating, redecorating, that kind of thing. We're going to have it rented out and all that stuff. So I went down there for eh, about seven to 10 days. You know, I was down there for a short amount of time. And as we were, you know, giving this condo a makeover so it would be, you know, really welcoming for a future tenant and that kind of thing. I was sitting there, I was like, you know, there's just too much for us to take on here. You know, we're we're mudding and painting and we're cleaning and we're doing this, that, and the other thing, we're taking trips to Ikea to just put some little nice furniture in there because we're renting it out as a fully furnished unit. And my brother had actually told me to check out TaskRabbit. He was like, you know, it's super convenient, whatever. It's like the Uber for getting any random little stuff done around the house. <laughs> wow, okay, let me check this out. So I download the app. I go on, I'm like, type in my address and there's all these different services. And I'm like, okay, I, I, I could use a deep clean in this condo. It's like, yeah, I could, I could have someone to come by and like, you know, patch up the countertop or something. And I just, I was choosing from a wide selection of all these different little services. And I had someone on the app, come in and assemble some furniture that I had ordered online. So there was one point in the day where, you know, we were standing in this condo and, you know, we're painting some walls and stuff. But while we're painting the walls, I got a guy from TaskRabbit who's putting together the furniture. I got another guy from TaskRabbit who's, you know, like smoothing out some cracks in the countertop. And I got someone else showing up a few hours after that to deep clean the whole place. And I went out to dinner with my girlfriend, right? <laughs> and I was just like, this is so amazing, right? Like the, the work is getting done. Uh, regular everyday people from the community are making good money. I'm not paying this money to like some big faceless corporation. These are, these are everyday average Canadians who are looking to make some side hustle income. Mm-hmm. And I'm saving myself a ton of time and effort. And I think it's totally worth the money that I paid for it. So I was on my way back to the Sioux from the GTA. And I was thinking to myself, like, little stuff like this, like like TaskRabbit, it would have such an extraordinary impact for the local economy, for the local prosperity of people who live in this community. Because, you know, let's say you come home from your job in the Sioux. You've got an empty evening. Sure, you could make some side hustle income by delivering for Uber Eats or something. Okay, that's one option. But if we had TaskRabbit, you could... Uh, Log on to the app and you can make some money painting someone's house. You could make some money cleaning someone's house. You can make some money, whatever, whatever skills you have, you can monetize that. And naturally, like, I went on the app. I typed in my Sault Ste. Marie address and did all this stuff. And I got a little message on the app that said, sorry, we are not currently in this region yet. And I
0: was like, oh, wow. Now there you got the opportunity to develop, I think you'd have to call it, I'd rather be fishing. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like,
2: it's like either you reach out to companies like TaskRabbit and you say, hey, this is really needed in Sault Ste. Marie. Can you launch over here? Or if they're not willing to do that, we create a made in Sault Ste. Marie solution mm-hmm. that sort of mirrors TaskRabbit that is a tried, tested and true business model because apparently they're doing really well in the bigger cities. And you call it something else that does largely the same thing and you you fill that need here. And I have every confidence that something like that will eventually be available here. There's just so much innovation slowly happening. And if not something made locally, maybe a a bigger player like TaskRabbit will come in and launch that service here. But, you know, there's, like you were talking about earlier, like $1 spent can have a magnification, you know, up to $7 or more. So imagine just by that one company making that one decision to launch their app in this location, God knows how many locals here would benefit from something like that. Like more than anything, what we've seen from the ride sharing industry or the food delivery industry, which does help a lot of locals make some side hustle income, which is great. There's so much more potential with these other similar apps. You know, So I was thinking about that
0: a lot over the last week. Yeah. And that's, the opportunities are endless, right? Yeah. We just have to be creative in our thinking. We have to really, I think in Sault St. Marie get out of our sort of thinking along traditional models, Yeah. Right. So that's one of the biggest challenges in Northern Ontario, you know, is, you know, the history of being rather isolated. Right. Right. But now that there is more technology, you know, you've got places like the Sault Ste. Marie airport where you can connect now to the globe, that sort of, infrastructure to do business has really gone uh, a long way we do need to repair our roads a little bit better yeah. and it's pothole season yeah uh, you know but and this is you know one of the things that we talked to the municipality about is like you know it's great to have a two-pad you know arena it's great to have a piazza. it's great to have a market but at the end of the day you need people to pay for those things so that they don't lose money right so you have to be able to really think about what is that return on the taxpayers dollars? Well, that's, you need to bring more people here, right. You know, to buy houses, to build houses, you know, to spread the property taxes out amongst the population because, you know, in Northern Ontario our all forecasts are that all our communities are going to be shrinking. You know, that's the forecast. Subbury has grown a little bit, but we have to put that behind us and think about, you know, The things that we need to put in place to make sure we're attracting those entrepreneurs and those folks that will develop these type of applications that, you know, are not just to reside in Sault Ste. Marie, but, you know, think about going bigger. Like, how do we generate that kind of, you know, gazelle, if you like, you know, that high growth company and how do you bring the dreamers, right? Right. How do you bring the dreamers? So, you know, that's a that's a challenge for us when, you know, we think about <clears throat> most of our lines of thinking and, our, and traditional formats are probably based in the 70s here. I mean, it's reality in Sault Ste. Marie, right? I mean, you know, we are sort of foundational, you know, kind of a 70s sort of community and, and a lot of us, you know, recognize that there are people that, She's off. Oh, it was only just the good old days, right? <laughs> and those days are gone. Like, you'll never get them back. So, yeah. we need to think differently. And that's, you know, we do need to make these investments in lifestyle things like the pad, the piazza, the market. You know, but we also need to make sure that we're spending the money to invest to attract the people to come and pay for those things, right? Right, 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 right.
2: Well, there was an article in uh, Toronto Life not too long ago. I think it was Toronto Life or Narcity or maybe both of them that was just specifically about all the wonderful reasons to move to Sault Ste. Marie. And I was just floored when I saw this pop up on my news feed. I was like, whoa, Like these are big, well-known media brand names that are now talking about all the reasons to move year you know like that's that kind of media exposure is i think very very much needed it was surprising to see but it was a pleasant
0: surprise absolutely <laughs> so. you know what also was another really good thing and somebody once said to me that tourism yeah is the first step to economic development right right so this this is you know key around those areas and you've seen a lot of great lifestyle marketing around the tourism pieces right for Northern Ontario which in Sault Ste. Marie. Yeah. And that really is, I mean, it holds true, right? You bring somebody here and they kind of go like, wow, okay, this is pretty cool. Yeah. And lots to do, you know, people say, oh, there's nothing to do in Sault Ste. Marie. No, that, no, you know, no, when they no, you get no. your head out of the sand, man, yeah, because, get your head the sand, yeah. you know, there's tons of things to do here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's those things that when you, you know, we're, we're now getting 30 to 35 cruise ships that come through, Wow! you know, to visit their day stops, right? Great, great lakes tours. Yeah. Wow. You know, but we need to get out of the box because there's absolutely nobody greeting them on the waterfront. No,
2: like, come on people. It's a missed opportunity.
0: It is. I mean, you should have a powwow there. You can now with a more diverse, you can have a cultural event there to show off the diversity. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, these individuals are going to go back and talk about it to somebody else. Right. And tourism is experiential now. Right. And yeah. And so we need to, we need to be investing money in those things to really make that experience as solid as possible, because it truly is the first door to economic development. And we have a great product, right? We have a great tourism product. So, you know, that's one way of getting is to do the traditional marketing, economic development, marketing, like you do, you put it in those publications about, the place to live. Yeah. But you also need to have somebody come and share the experience, right?
2: Yeah. That's it. It's about the experience. Yeah.
0: When we look at the potential again of Sault Ste. Marie, yeah, is, you know, we talked about the seasonality. Like eventually you're going to get bored of Bali. You got, I mean, like 90 <laughs> degree sunshine every day and crystal clear <laughs> waters is. is it mean, sounds good for a it, few months. Yeah. It sounds good for a few months or a vacation, but, yeah. you know, you've got something that's really dynamic here because I mean the activities that you can experience because of our four seasons Yeah, and some of those seasons are more intense than the others, but but it still has something that is really truly unique to our, to our area. Right. And that again is what people are starting to migrate to those things that, you know, it's just not, I get up at nine to five, I get on the subway, you know, come home go through the same routine every single day. Like here depends on what time of year it is. You know, your experience is going to be totally different. Than yeah. it will be somewhere else, which again gives you that whole diversity. Right. And again, that's a great attractiveness. To yeah. get People to the zoo.
2: Yeah. I think people need like seasons around the year. You know, I, I feel, you know, in theory, it sounds really great to be in a place that's just warm all year around and okay. You know, theoretically, but something about it, I don't know, in my mind just seems maybe unusual to me just because that's not what I'm used to. I expect that, you know, when it's time for the snow to fall, I want the snow to fall. Like my dog wants to go run around in the snow and roll around and everything. I like to, you know, we've got a fire pit in the backyard. We light that up and standing out there with the snow slowly falling on a cold night, but you're standing by the fire. There's something charming about it. it's something enjoyable about it and then of course when the summer comes it's a totally different vibe if i were to live in a place where it was just one type of weather all year round i don't know i feel like there's something that would i'd be missing out on it's somewhat ironic that one of the things that people will sort of paint as a negative aspect of the sioux is like the incredibly long and harsh winters but i feel like it adds to the overall dynamic of what the year looks like here you want to be able to appreciate all parts of the of the year, you know, you your December looks different from your D- July and it looks different from your October and that's a good thing. It reminds me of when I, you know, I actually did talk about this on a previous episode. It somewhat reminds me of the seasonality that I was accustomed to growing up in Bedford, Nova Scotia. You know, there's your winters and there's your summers and there's all these different parts in between. And you know, I think that's, you know, part of that reason and many, many other reasons is something that attracted me to this part of Ontario and
0: yeah, you know, it's uh, interesting because so just this weekend was uh, a cano gala, the African Caribbean Canadian Association in Northern Ontario. Okay. And I had my, I'll say my adopted son from Nigeria, okay. Ife, come from Toronto. Okay. And, uh, you know, he did an internship with the chamber and we became friends and nice. he adopted us and we adopted him basically. <laughs> so I call him my, my Nigerian son and he is so... Enamored with Sault Saint Marie, he went to Toronto for work. Yeah, but so enamored with Sault Saint Marie, and he misses it. And yeah, he was cold. Was he dressed properly? Well, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, so, so, but the experience, his experience as being the seasonality is something that he completely enjoys, right? Yeah. And that, and then the Sioux, the connectivity he found here quickly, and yeah, you know, the diversity in the Sioux is starting to change, and and you know our our cultures are feeling more comfortable in Sault Ste. Marie, which is great to see, right. And being more accepted. And those are all very positive things to, we need to travel down that path because we need to attract people from all cultures to come to Sault Ste. Marie. Right. But the interesting thing is we were talking about, Oh, he's in the, the North part of Scarborough, probably not too far from the Scarborough town center. He says, I have a fire pit in my backyard. <laughs> and he's like, there is no way I would ever light that thing. Yeah. And there's probably no way ever I could get a permit to light it. And if yeah. I did light it, yeah. my neighbors would be all over me to, yeah. you know they would
2: lose their minds. Oh I'm absolutely. familiar with that. Yeah. 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 Absolutely, right? Yeah. They would lose their
0: minds. You're gonna set my house on fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and which it may it may do, but <laughs> but here, you know, here you are, you know, you think about it, and one of the funny things that we noticed moving from southern Ontario is the winters are very different. Southern Ontario tends to be very humid. Gotcha. Right. So at minus two or minus three degrees Celsius, you're chilled to the bone. Right. But at minus 30 in Sault Ste. Marie, hey, I'm barbecuing. Right. I'm a shorts and sandals guy. Right. And I will go outside at minus 30 in my shorts because there is no humidity. Right. My wife looks at me like I'm nuts. Right. But I'll put my Crocs on and out I go. You know, and, I'll have a fire pit, right? It just, you know, so it. you can make those adjustments. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> That's just it. That's, I, I love it. <laughs>
0: yeah. So it's a, it's a great place to be, you know, when it, there's continued opportunity Yeah. and we really need to seize the day, yeah. you know, and build that passion for building our community. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I think what you've found in most Northern Ontario communities, because I talk to all my colleagues, right? Yeah. So oddly enough, there's like 32 chambers of commerce in Northern Ontario.
2: 32 chambers. 32
0: chambers. Some That's of them north. very, very small, you okay. know, like other oh, volunteer based or half person. But th- we have, you know, our major Thunder Bay, Timmins, North Bay, Sudbury and ourselves, right? right. We get together on a, a very regular basis and we talk about our communities, right? And there has been, I think a bit of an awakening that we need to be outside of who we used to be traditionally. Right. Right. You know, just our community, no outsiders, you know, and now we're like, well, yeah, we want people from other cultures. We want people from Southern Ontario. We want people from the East coast. Right. We want people from the West coast, you know, and because it just builds a better community. Oh, right? yeah. It goes back to that yeah. diversity thing. It that enriches we the economy. About. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, but when we take a look at just, it's kind of, you know, funny to just spin it this way when we open up talking about chambers, talk about it again, is that, you know, you think about that 32 chambers in Northern Ontario. This is, I tried to explain this once when I was doing some advocacy work at Queens Park. And I think we were in the official opposition's boardroom and they had these two pictures on the wall. And they were both the same size. Okay. And one was Southern Ontario and one was Northern Ontario. And I said to all the public servants and the and the politicians in the room, if you truly want to understand Northern Ontario, take the Southern Ontario painting and put it on an eight by eleven sheet of paper. Leave the other one exactly <laughs> the same size it is. <laughs> Cause that really that really is what when you think about the size of Northern yeah. Ontario, yeah, it will blow your mind. Yeah. Like really. You know, when, when people from Toronto that say, oh, I'm just going to drive up to North Bay, good luck. Yeah. Have fun (laughs) with that. Right. Three hours out of Toronto and then it's another six, Yeah, yeah. you know, and you know, it's hard to comprehend that. So, you know, to think that there's 32 chambers spread out, I mean, that's a lot of small communities, you know, that have some connectivity that are looking after their own little business community and trying to do things similar that we're trying to do. And, you know, to be able to harness that power. Yeah. Is hard, but we try to do that as best we can, working together as a northern network of chambers, you know. So it's a, and it creates a bit of a dynamic as well. So when we talk about business needs and trying to foster an economic uh, entrepreneurial ecosystem, we try to do that as one voice. Yeah, you know, to say, hey, there's power in this. Because the reality is, when you take a look at what drives or has been the primary drivers of economy in northern Ontario. It's mainly resource sector based, right? Yeah. Mining, lumber, water power, if you like. And that feeds Bay Street, like all the junior miners, yeah. you know, all the, all the publicly traded companies, you yeah. know, gold companies or lithium or nickel. You know, that feeds Bay Street, but it also feeds bankers, right? engineers, environmentalists, you know, environmental engineering and those kind of things. So, you know, there's huge power in the economy that we have existing. Now we want to be able to, I think, take that perspective and say, okay, how do we have something that's different? We diversify the economy into these things like software development. Yeah, You know, how do we start to think about, you know, ICT as part of our economy? Because, you know, I mean, eventually natural resources will run out. There's policy afoot that really makes it hard to develop a mind, you know? So there's a lot of these things that are happening. So we need other economic generators. We need to start thinking away from those traditional ways of creating jobs into creating economies really is what you're looking at.
2: Right. So you said that you were down at Queens Park. You were there. Tell me more about that. You were there for what?
0: Yes we do a lot of advocacy work, right? so talking to public servants, talking to uh, the politicians about policy, how it impacts business, okay or impacts your community. okay I'm actually down there on Monday. Oh wow. on Monday, so we have a full day scheduled with the Ontario Chamber of Commerce from eight till about 6:30 in the evening, like eight in the morning till 6:30 in the evening. So we're talking about things that are important to us as a chamber, as a community, as Northern Ontario, a province or Canada, really kind of depends but when we're there when I'm representing Sault Ste. Marie I always want to put a northern spin on it right right right. because you want them to realize just like in that you know depiction southern Ontario versus the expansiveness of northern Ontario you want them to realize that and understand why it's important to think about you know policies and how they impact you know the unintended consequences right so let's talk about electrical infrastructure Right. So we just sort of briefly talked about PUC and installing, you know, the power outlet for an EV. Yeah. That is a different conversation between Southern Ontario and Northern Ontario because Northern Ontario needs power grid infrastructure. That's our primary thing that, you know, once you get outside of Sault Ste. Marie residential, the power infrastructure is absolutely critical to the future development of our economy. Right. Where the focus, is in Southern Ontario tends to be what you just did, investing in stations or outlets in home to be able to charge your EV, right? Right. An EV at minus 30 reacts differently than it does in Southern Ontario. Oh, yeah. You know, so there's a lot of those things. When we start to travel the path around the electrification, Northern Ontario is more grid-based and infrastructure-based where it's more distribution in Southern Ontario. So two very different departments you know, or to entities that take care of that different types of government policy and funding needed to address that. Right. So those are the kind of the messages that we want to bring to them. One of the things that I have the fortunate circumstance to be attending a meeting with the deputy minister that is focused now on uh, health and addictions. Okay. And, you know, the ability to talk around the conversations how that impacts community, obviously, and individuals. But as a chamber, we also want the policymakers to understand the impact that it has on businesses. Right. Right. And a lot of people say, well, addiction is not a business issue. say it is 110% a business issue, right, and from a number of different aspects. Yeah. You know, one is obviously the health and well-being of your labor force, your employees, right? And there's a cost to people calling in sick, to people not showing up. There's a cost associated with that because of the outcomes of addiction, right? There's break-ins and theft driven by the need to fulfill one's addiction. Yep. And people just say, oh, you just claim that on your insurance. Well, people don't realize that if you're like a retailer downtown, most likely your deductible is five grand. Yeah. So when somebody breaks a window and steals a thousand dollars worth of closing, that's out of your pocket.
2: There's a mental health impact on the business owner as well. It's not just a financial ramification.
0: Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and and even business owners can fall into those things. I mean addiction addiction has it knows no socioeconomic yeah boundaries. It knows no cultural boundaries. It yeah. takes whoever it wants for oh, whatever yeah. reason, right? Yeah. So it is a business issue from a number of different aspects. And the, the ability to communicate that. And, and interesting, I just had my car serviced and We were talking about some of these things because the facility now has to gate all of their vehicles because of catalytic converters being stolen Like to feed one's addiction. And the service manager was telling me about he had a customer that had a a truck and it needs a specific converter on it because it's a a diesel. The cost is $10,000. He had it stolen four times. Oh, my God. He just said, and insurance doesn't cover that. And he said, I, I have to close the business because I just, I can't afford it anymore. I, I can't make a living. So that 40 grand was basically his wages. So, wow. you know, those kind of things. And sometimes yeah. people just don't connect the dots. Yeah. And part of our role then is to connect those dots for them, right? And to think about then, okay, well, policies that we're considering, you know, yes, I yeah. can, you know, they're focused on the general community. Absolutely but we need to make sure also we're supporting the business community because they're dealing with these things themselves as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's, I didn't fully appreciate the, the way that the dots were connected, you know, the way that, you know, when you have rampant, unfortunate addiction in a community, the way that that can then spill over into all these different issues where it's like, okay, you've got people committing property crimes to feed their addiction. You've got business owners who are incurring losses, damage to their property, damage to their assets because of this type of crime happening in the community. It's all so interconnected and you know and it, and it makes you, you know, worry for the future economic growth and prosperity of the community. It's like, well, sure you can attract all these entrepreneurs and future business owners into the community and they can with all this enthusiasm and optimism for the future they can pour money into a storefront or whatever maybe a like a automotive type business like you were talking about uh, or a software company whatever it is but they're operating in an environment where there's these there's a domino effect happening where one type of problem rooted in addiction is causing another problem another problem another problem until it affects the whole system and it's like what do you do with that you know I've said this so many times before and and maybe even once or twice on this podcast that it's my understanding that lawyers are 3.5 times more likely to encounter substance abuse problems and, and, and depression and also suicidal ideation or are actually making that choice to end their life, you know? And for me, it's such a complex thing, you know, because I was talking to a lawyer just today, not within the company I work at, it was, it was a different company. And, you know, we sort of touched on this topic about how you pursue this, this line of work and all of a sudden, as the years go by, so it's not all of a sudden, it's slowly and gradually, but as the years go by, you wake up one day and it feels like all of a sudden you discover that this work that you've been doing has had this terrible effect on your mental well-being. And then you have a choice to make. You know, do you pursue something else? Do you, you close up shop and reinvent your life? Maybe that's the best thing for you, right? Maybe that's the key to your happiness, depending on who you are. It's something that I was thinking about as you were telling me that story of the business owner who said, you know what, I just can't afford this nonsense anymore. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shut this stuff down. I can't afford another bill for a stolen catalytic converter. Or whatever. Just like, you know, there are other professions out there like lawyering, I just mentioned, where they wake up one day and they say, you know what, this was my last straw. I can't do this anymore. And that hurts everybody. That hurts the whole community. When you have service providers, businesses that meet the needs of the community, and you have them getting so burnt out because they're just sick and tired of being broken into.
0: If I I can, I'll I'll just share with you that my brother is a lawyer. prosecutor, okay? And was really in the in the juvie courts, right? And you know and it it's tough. You see a side of life that you know most of us in the middle class, to be honest with you, would never see. A certain socioeconomic sector, right, that has challenges, you know, whether it's family, mental health, financial or whatever. You're dealing with a lot of really challenged individuals with some potentially Violent or criminal outcomes, yeah, uh, abuse, you know, all those kind of things, and uh, it happened to to my brother. And the trigger was when my dad passed away. Okay, Uh, took it very hard, and he woke up one day and said, "That's it, I can't do this to myself anymore." Because he had his own issues, and and uh, was actually diagnosed with PTSD from his job. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me from his job. Does not surprise me. uh, you know, it's, it's crazy, you know, what, what it can do. And people, I think, people tend to look at, I think, professionals and business owners as being immune yeah. from these things. And the conversations these days that are happening are really, really, really great. And the support mechanisms that are happening for businesses and their employees are really uh, starting to, get the notice that they should have, right? And those implementations that you need to have in a business. And here's kind of a role for a chamber of commerce because what you tend to see in the the business landscape is the larger corporates have the capacity and the resources to fulfill on those particular kinds of needs, right? Chamber of commerce is 90% small business. That's 100 employees and less. Yeah. Most of them don't have an HR person let alone access to maybe even employee benefits, you know, which we actually offer through an organization and network across Canada. But even just the basic understanding of where to start. If I think somebody's got a drinking problem or an opioid problem or another addiction problem is bringing it to work, what do I do? Yeah, what do you do? Yeah. What do you do? And where are those resources, right? And, you know, part of our role is to connect folks to those. Resources locally, right? Whatever they might be, and sort of say that you know this conversation is okay.
2: I didn't right? even know that the chamber does that kind of work. Yeah, so mm-hmm.
0: we we have it's really kind of a great uh, a great plan. It's done with what's called the Johnson Group, which was actually set up as a not for profit organization. Yeah, and they built out an employee benefits plan for chamber members only. Wow. So it's not for profit. So they recycle it back into product development, yeah. keeping your rates down and it will uh, do an employee benefit for a person of one. And most programs won't do that. Right. Wow. For, and for entrepreneurs, it's like taboo. Right. But you know, this plan does that and it does it in a very cost effective way. But it's even that as you start to see those programs, they have really developed a lot of support mechanisms now along the mental health and well-being alongside of some accounting, some legal, some human resources, yep. so that there's somewhere to go, you know, if you want to call it a safe place to have a conversation, yeah, you know, because this is sometimes the biggest fear, you yeah. know, where a business owner is like, I don't know how to handle this, but man, I'm really, you know, I don't know what people will think. Yeah. If I go out and have these conversations, you know, about an employee, they're going to, you know, am I going to break confidence? There's all these things rolling around in the mind of an entrepreneur, a business owner, about the what ifs, right? And, you know, all I can say to them is just think about what if you didn't take action? Yeah. What would be the outcome? Yeah. Right. So there are, you know, are ways that you can get connected to folks that can help through some of these issues and help deal with employees, right? Yeah. Or different, different aspects, right? So, But it is phenomenal, I think, you know, how central this conversation has come within the business community about the value of health and well-being. Yeah. You know, we've talked a lot about that today, but, and it's all connected again, right? It's all connected to whether you want to build an entrepreneurial ecosystem and attract folks, you know, how people are looking at work differently. And, you know, it really is uh, an interesting concept now that we're seeing just evolve. Yeah.
2: I think it's really, really commendable that your brother made the brave choice of being honest with himself and saying, that's it. This is where I'm drawing the line. I'm not going to do this to myself anymore. In fact, I would say a lot of lawyers don't ultimately make that brave choice. They'll stay in a role performing work that is harmful to them. And they'll keep doing it well past the point of burnout, well past the point that they should be working. And they will just keep, 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 keep doing it. Yeah. But he made the brave choice to do what was good for his mental health and get out of it. And I'm curious to know how that story unfolded further. Like what were the things that happened in his life and the, and the choices that he made thereafter, you know, after coming to that sort of, aha moment that point of enlightenment where he's like i need to change course how did that ultimately
0: unfold thereafter yeah so i mean he had to him and his wife and his his son had to make some you know hard decisions around how do you manage a household and you know loss of income and those kind of things and he was able to i think he said he was probably the first crown prosecutor that ever went on A disability claim or something through government support, you know, whether it's WSIB, I'm not too sure, but he ran that battle through saying, and this is interesting story, can a lawyer as a crown claim disability, right? Or through that process for income support diagnosed with PTSD, right? And one, I mean, in those days, I mean, we're talking probably eight years ago now. He got out of the workforce for five years and he's just started to work back in and has a research side. He got out of the courtroom. Yeah. Got out of the criminal oh, I don't blame him stuff and all of that. Him. Yeah. So now he's taking on a role that's he can work from home, you know, and, but he had to go through therapy sessions. He you know, he had to find ways to express himself, he became an artist, right? So that is his therapy now, right? Is being connected into his art. And he does it for himself even though he probably could make some money on the side doing it. But, you know, but it was a process, but you got to have the support of your family, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and that was a journey for him. So
2: I see so much, if I may, I see so much of my own journey, the story that you're telling me about your brother, you know, when you, especially when you just said those words, he became an artist. It's funny because like, I don't know how to paint, but I don't consider that to be the definition of Mm -hmm. artist. Right. An artist is anyone who expresses themselves. You could Absolutely. be a singer. You could be a content creator. You could be doing podcasts, right? You got to get in touch with the creative side of your, your mind and your soul and feed that part of your soul and give that part of you an outlet to express yourself. And I think that that just has the most wonderful mental health benefits. And, you know, for me, I'm far more happy having conversations like this really like meaningful human conversations. Mm-hmm. And of course, sharing that with the world with all this wonderful technology. I'm so much happier doing that versus standing in a courtroom. And it sounds like your brother came to a similar realization and, and did what was right for him. So no, absolutely. Th- there's so many professionals. I forget lawyers for a moment. I mean like doctors left the profession in droves during the pandemic because I imagine the mental health impact on them as well as nurses and Mm -hmm. and other medical professionals, they left because, you know, they had to draw a line at some point saying, this is too much for me. And whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or or any other professional in a high stress job, it's so important, I think, to be honest with yourself about, you know, when is enough enough? And when are you going to make time for human expression, artistry, in whatever form that might take, and finally experience all the joy come with that and yeah maybe maybe it involves uh changing your financial situation maybe it involves making some sacrifices in that regard but if you do it with your family if you talk about it with them that you know what maybe we can make those financial sacrifices and in fact be in a position where all of us are just so much happier
0: as a result yeah no absolutely you know and and i had mentioned earlier that my father was a, a british engineer yeah you know and they're not known as the most touchy feely individuals on the planet, right? <laughs> like they're not emotional. Yeah. And and I always say when I make an engineering joke, I've earned every right to do so. <laughs> yeah. so. But uh you know, but that concept of you need to hold it all in. Yeah. Right? That is itself, you know, a self perpetuating harm to your emotional well-being. Yeah. And it's difficult because again To put this back into like a business owner's context, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is if you're that individual, you're that leader, you're in that position and you think that you can't talk to anybody about it, right? Or you can't express what you're feeling or the emotional turmoil you're in. And we talk about lawyers and accountants and, and doctors and that. There's still... They're still professionals, right? All these guys are still entrepreneurs. Yeah. yeah. You know, all those people are still entrepreneurs, right? Or intrapreneurs. Yeah. And, you know, if they've taken control of a situation and put themselves in those leadership positions, they tend to isolate themselves from expressing their emotions that they're feeling on a professional level, if you like. And that's why when we talk about starting a business and being an entrepreneur and measuring risks. Yeah you have to realize that that's part of it too. Right. And that's why, you know, we say bringing people together is probably one of the best things that we do. That's what we do. Yeah. Whether we're convening for advocacy or, or, you know, bringing people together just to have a meal or one of our take five love local events and bringing those people together is an outlet for that. Right. And it puts you in a safe space and an environment where, you know, a lot of, a lot of people have been there, done that, right? And it's if you're a new entrepreneur, I can't stress enough how beneficial that can be to you, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I'll just, you know, we we just had our local take five love local at a funeral parlor, Barton's funeral parlor, right? And people are kind of, man, that's kind of weird, right? Just like, well, no, I mean, it's they just spent a ton of money remodeling. And why did they remodel this? They remodeled it because the way we treat death is changing as well. Right. Right. And it's more now around the celebration of life as, as opposed to bringing finality to it. I mean, that's part of it. Don't get me wrong, but the celebration of life. And it's interesting as we start to change those conversations and recognize, you know, what somebody brought to the table as an individual, sometimes good, sometimes bad. That's just part of life it was interesting to see how the business, the funeral home business was changing its model as the consumer demand changed. And I think the thing that just brought it home for me is in one of the corners, they had a display and it was a snowmobile (laughs) with pictures of the individual and the urn on the snowmobile. All right. You cannot say anything more than Sault Ste. Marie ish. then, you know what, when I go. I'm going on my snowmobile (laughs) and you're going to bury me with my snowmobile. It's just, you know, the essence of, of Northern Ontario. Right. So, you know, but those are some interesting dynamics that are kind of changing in our world today. That's
2: good. That's really great to see. (laughs) That's, that's how I want to go. Jay, One day there'll be a big celebration of my life and probably going to involve something like that. (laughs) Rory, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I feel like I could sit here and talk to you for another three hours. I wouldn't even notice the time go by. I'm sure there's going to be people that listen to this episode and, and reach out and ask for you to come back. And, Love uh, and that would be that be really exciting. We've covered so much today. We've talked about the mental health side of entrepreneurship. We've talked about, you know, putting Sault Ste. Marie on the map in terms of its future economic growth opportunities. And there's just so much. And it's been such a, for me, such an exciting discussion as an entrepreneur, as someone who has spent a great deal of my career building up a business and currently running a few multiple operations and investments. And I really hope, it's my hope that out there, someone has in the local community has absorbed what you've shared with us today. And, you know, maybe they decide to take that first step and they build something new and they create something. And one day I walk into a business and I see this thriving store and the owner tells me, hey, you know, I listened to Rory on that episode and I, I decided I was going to do this. You know, like that to me would just be like a dream come true. So no, that's
0: awesome. You know what? That would be an amazing outcome. Yeah. And if we can do that more than once, that's even more amazing, right? <laughs> <laughs> I've really enjoyed the time and thank you for the invitation. And my pleasure. I will accept any invitation to come back. So I really appreciate uh, you know, what you do here. Appreciate you for being a chamber member. And, you. you know, really love it. And I look forward to watching some of the podcasts. Amazing. All right, Rory. Next time. Thanks. <laughs> See you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the
1: Sue Podcast.
0: Follow us on Spotify, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. And be sure to check out our website at suepodcast.com. That's
2: S-O-O podcast.com.